Hey everybody, welcome to California Haunts Radio. It's Sunday, Sunday Reading Day, and this is the day that I read from a paranormal theme book. We have permission from the author and the publisher to do this. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can help you no matter where you're at. It may take us a while to get to you. California is like a really huge state, but uh, we will eventually gets you to, like I said, one or two days, never more. And we also have psychics on staff that, you know, in the event that we are in a situation where we can't get to you right away, they can call you and consult with you about what may, be, may or may not be going on in your home or residence. And the majority of the cases, they can calm things down until we get there. So uh, look us up. We are available on TikTok under California Haunts. We are on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Radio, Cal Haunts, and under my name, and we are on Twitter under Cal, I believe California Haunts. We're on Twitch under Cal Haunts, and I think that's just about covered everybody. Oh, I forgot. YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, youtube.com at California Haunts Radio, forward slash at California Haunts Radio. You can reach us on YouTube. So uh, there's all kinds of ways to reach us if you think you might have something paranormal going on in your life. For everybody on TikTok, welcome. I wish I could see your comments. I can barely see them. I have old eyes, and you're on my iPhone 11, so uh, please know that, that 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 I am seeing you put the comments up and stuff during the show. I'm going to be reading from a paranormal theme book for about an hour. This is a true story. It is uh, called Omnipresent 2, What Happened Next. Um, this is written by Lynn Monet, uh, the author in the Omnipresent 1, to give you guys a quick recap. The author had purchased a home, the single mother had purchased a home for her and her two kids, maybe three kids, I forget, her kids. And uh, they were getting ready to move in, really excited about moving into the home. And the home was haunted. And not only was it haunted, it had some dark entities in there. So they never really got to move in because while they were moving in and making the changes in the home, you know, doing flooring and stuff, all kinds of things started to happen. And they, some of them weren't very nice. So... This, so they ended up selling the house and moving out. But the activity and stuff didn't stop there, okay? Um, Lynn found out she was she had psychic abilities after this, and so this is a continuation, and she and she does a lot of follow-up with, with people, newer people that purchased that, that house. So she does a lot of follow-up, and that's where we're at with this. So I'm going to be reading for about an hour out of this book. This is the fourth time we've, we've read the book this month. And uh, for you, for everybody on TikTok, I do have a live goal of 50 Lucy Llamas. I'm trying to support my radio show. We broadcast Sunday through Sunday through Friday every week. Uh, Sunday is our reading day, and the rest of the week we have paranormal themed guests on. Whether it's for UFOs, UAPs, you name it, exorcisms, anything, anything under the sun we have on. And for you guys on YouTube, since we don't broadcast on YouTube yet, because I don't have, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, YouTube. God, TikTok, it's one of those days. For you guys on TikTok, since we don't broadcast on TikTok yet, as far as the radio show goes, you can find the show at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. And that's at 6.30 p.m. Pacific every day, okay? So I will be on here announcing those shows as we go. I'm also looking to do a lot more on TikTok. You're going to see me a lot more starting, uh, well, October, yeah. This month you're going to see us a lot more, and I'm trying to build up my TikTok presence so if you could help me out with likes i'd appreciate it. double tap that screen while i'm reading this book i would really really appreciate it. i have a goal of four thousand likes today so if you guys over on tiktok can help me out with that that would be great also by doing that and that goes for facebook and anybody that's on youtube 
Also, by doing that with the likes and, and leaving comments, that puts us higher up in the FYP algorithm. And so that puts us out to more people because the key is you want to get more people watching your show, right? So that's what it's all about. So if you could do that, I appreciate it. Just like your comments, the more comments, that also puts us up higher in the FYP. I, I really appreciate it. That being said, um, again, uh, don't, please double tap that screen. I'm going to remind everybody, you know, if, if you like what you hear today, be sure to hit that like button, double tap that screen over on TikTok. And also, you know, if you if you want to give me a gift, you're not required to to send me any gifts or anything like that. But I appreciate it. You know, I got Lucy the Llama sitting over there. And like I said, I'm trying to pay my bills. It's the first of the month. And I got a bunch of bills that I have to pay. And it would be really helpful if you guys could help me out a little bit with that. You know, I really appreciate it. I see the hearts coming up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Like I said, my goal today is 5,000 likes on TikTok. And again, Facebook, same thing. Thumbs up, happy faces, hearts. I really appreciate it to put me up that algorithm. If you haven't done so already on, on TikTok, I also have a subscribe. Uh, you guys will be called my Boo Crew. And uh, I'd like to get some subscribers going so we can do some private shows as well with you guys and uh, start that process. So if you don't mind, I mean, I would, uh, I'd appreciate that too. All right. Facebook, uh, if you haven't done so already and you haven't followed and you like what you hear today, please be sure to follow. Okay. Hit that follow button. YouTube. 701 subscribers, 300, wait, wait, 299 away from that 1,000 mark. Let's hit it, let's hit it, let's hit it. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe if you, if you like what you hear. Plus, if you're at home and you like what you hear today, be sure to tell people in your house, okay? Say, hey, there's this little show that I'm watching on the weekends that's pretty cool. You know, why don't you come watch it? That would be really great. Okay, again, please double tap that screen and uh, show, show me some love with this. We're going to be reading Omnipresent, What Happens Next? So uh, for some people on the East Coast, uh, it's, it's evening, and you're probably done with your dinner. You're getting ready to slide out into work. Put your fuzzies on your feet, sit on the couch, grab a cup of coffee or some hot cocoa, dim those lights, and I'm going to read to you for the next hour, okay? You might even be doing laundry or something. Carry me around your pocket you know, while, while you're doing laundry. That would be cool. I don't care. Uh, you know, just, just listen to this great book. It's, it's really well put together book. All right, so here we go. I'm going to be reading for about an hour, so that would put us down at uh, around 7.06 uh, p.m. Pacific. And we're, we're starting in Chapter 10 with Omnipresent, What Happened Next. Now, I want to let you guys know, this is a PG-13 uh, bordering on Rated R channel. So if you hear anything today that makes you uncomfortable, please do not turn me into the to the internet police, okay, on either TikTok, Facebook, or YouTube, because um, I'm just trying to, you know, read a book. It's a book, and I have permission to read it and all this stuff, so there may be uncomfortable things. Like, for instance, the topic of, ch of Chapter 10 is suicide. So I'm just letting you guys know ahead of time. I don't want to get banned anywhere. That's not my goal. My goal is to stay on the air. So, again, you know, there's other channels you can go to and check out. I'd appreciate that. Okay, I really would appreciate that. If, if, you, if there's something you're uncomfortable with, please just move on. All right? Okay? I appreciate it. All right. Well, if you like, well, again, double tap that screen on TikTok. Show me some love over on YouTube and Facebook and, uh, and Twitch, and away we go. Chapter 10, Suicide. A lot of people have had loved ones that have committed suicide. They wonder if the person is on the other side or if they went to the proverbial hell, according to Christian beliefs. The answer is not really either. It all depends on the circumstances. Are the circumstances called by mental illness or drug addiction? Was it on purpose or accidental? Was the suicide, which rarely happens, planned before them coming into this lifetime? Was it out of selfishness and trying to get even with one another? 
Was it out of fear and cowardice to avoid reproductions? Let me double check something because I don't think I set my mic over here. I was so busy setting up TikTok this morning that I didn't check my mic. So let me double check on this one. Nope. Okay. Here we, there we go. Now we're Okay. Back to was it on purpose or accidental? Was the suicide, which really happens, planned it before them coming into the lifetime? Was it out of selfishness or trying to get even with one another or another? Was it out of fear and cowardice to avoid repercussions of previous actions? Was there demonic jinn or arshan involvement? Was it a person who could not fully understand what committing suicide entailed, such as in the case of a child who commits suicide on a dare? Or because a child's friend did it, so they did too, to be like their friend? Was the suicide victim forced to do it through persuasion, threats, or harm? Did they refuse help? What were the influences leading up to it? Was it spur of the moment, or was it thought out and planned? Were they saving someone else's life by taking theirs? The list goes on and on. It's very co complex. However, understanding comes quickly once on the other side. Once guides and loved ones who were with them every step of the way from their birth already knows the details. They know one's goals on earth. They know the opportunities that were passed by or overlooked by the person. They understand the effect the suicide victim had on those who came into the earthly plane with the agreement to work with the person on meeting each of the person's goals. Parentheses. This includes children that were coming to life through a person, through, through the person that are now delayed or scrambling to find another way to enter that may not be as ideal, affecting their way to live and their prearranged agreements with others. Again, the dynamics are complex. The saying that God won't give you more than one can handle, perhaps, is true. Providing everything falls into place perfectly, like it does on the other side, and everyone involved is doing their part the way they're expected to, but they don't always do that. Some people may not be aware that everyone chooses their parents and siblings. This includes abusive ones. One may oppose an abusive parent because they're meeting with car they're, 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 because they are meeting karma and they were abusive as parents to their own children in their life. Abuse breeds abuse. When one is born, in, born into abuse and survives to have their own children, they can finalize the karmic debut or depth, sorry, by learning how to parent in a more effective way without abuse and raise their upcoming children in that way. One chose the family, one chose the family that they choose to come into so that they would be reared in such a way that the goals they have in their lifetime are within their ability to achieve. They may also be repaying or you know, repaying a karmic debt that is due. This is not a perfect world because of that. God also had people come in to formulate depression and anxiety medications, which when taken as prescribed with the, with help, those who are will help those who are overwhelmed and unable to focus or stay on track in life because of their depression or anxiety issues. These are a lot of outside sources, some that people can't even see, trying to knock people off course. Oh, there are, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm ahead of myself. There are a lot of outside sources, some that people can't even see, trying to knock people off course. Just about everyone does this in life. They have done before. Sometimes multiple times because they, they didn't meet, because they didn't meet their goal the first or second time around. Perhaps that is why there seems to be more addiction than ever. People did not overcome it in previous lives. Yes, people reincarnate. But some people are helper incarnates. 
reincarnates return because they didn't complete their checklist in the previous lifetime and have come in again to finish and possibly have new things to accomplish as well. An incarnate comes in because they choose to, not because they had to. They volunteer in order to help others meet their goals. Anyone who doesn't believe in reincarnation should ask themselves, where do babies come from? Where do they go after they take their last breath? The answer is the same place. They come and go. Everyone comes and goes. The world appears somewhat more harmless when being viewed from the billowy clouds above, while basking in the elation and unconditional love of the other side. This is usually when one makes their decision on what they will come to earth for, what their goals will be, and who will be with them in their life to help them accomplish what they need to do. Then, when one arrives here on the third plane, all kinds of negative forces, which they don't even consider, constantly try to influence and derail them. These negative souls want to snuff out one, one's God's God light and turn it into darkness or death. They create chaos and mayhem in life. They want people to commit suicide. They encourage a person to commit suicide because they know the future of the victim. Remember again, PG-13, rated R channel. If you don't like what you hear, you're uncomfortable with it, please move on. Okay, please move on. However, if you like what you're hearing, double tap that screen. I'm trying to get a goal of 4,000 likes today. Please double tap that screen. They create chaos and mayhem in life. They want people to commit suicide. They encourage a person to commit suicide because they know the future of the victim, the importance of the victim's future in the grand scheme of things, and the positive rippling effect that future is going to create. They want to stop it. Even if one's future holds nothing more than being in the right place at the right time to save another's life. It was intended for them to save that life. So many good things could come from the person who has saved, who has saved or their future children. They may donate a kidney to someone, or their child may grow up to be a doctor that invents something life-saving. Or the person themselves might be very, a very important vessel for others to come through that will lead to bigger and better things. Suicide is not an option that helps things to move forward in life. If one is suffering from a breakup, someone cheating on them, or getting robbed. It is a debt from a time when they did the same to someone else. It may have even occurred in the current lifetime. If one reflects back, they may remember, or it occurred on a previous one. Either way, one should learn from it and do better. Opting out of one's problems with suicide is not the answer, because one will repeat the scenario of their life over and over again until they get the things right. So they should own their problems instead of trying to escape and be humbled and make better choices. The first two weeks for a human, when embodied, are the worst. It's quite a shock. Then things start to get better as long as one isn't double or triple dipping, a.k.a. setting oneself up for more anguish and suffering by allowing a toxic person or situation back into their life or holding on to a hopeless hope. How many times has one seen another grasping the straws in abusive or one-sided relationship, pleading to have it remain a return? An abusive relationship is one that does not balance. It doesn't meet another's needs in some way, shape, or form, causing pain and anguish. The person becomes desperate to control the outcome so they can avoid suffering or loss, suffering the loss. Everyone has either seen someone go through this or have been there themselves, whether they want to admit it or not. A prime example of this would be a person who is in a relationship with someone who is already married to someone else. This would be not only considered one-sided, 
but also a triple-dipping relationship. For one thing, the married lover does leave their spouse for their affair partner. Statistics show that 85% of the time, that person will not only cheat again, but leave a situation for another. Why would anyone set themselves up for that? A person might rationalize it by saying, well, their lover isn't happy with the person they're married to and is going to leave the spouse. But their married lover will, fe will feed them crumbs and string them along for as long as they can. Because while they do, they have the best of both worlds. The spouse thinks they're faithful, and the lover waits with bated breath for more crumbs. Does one really think that they're not messing around the, that they're not messing around with their spouse because they said they are not they are lying to their spouse about cheating so why would they not lie to their to their lover about sleeping with their spouse or if they admit to being intimate with their spouse once out of a once out of a hundred times supposedly just to appease their spouse does one really think they didn't enjoy it to be pleasured to the point of climax of the spouse they didn't do it to appease the spouse. They did it because they got something out of it, too. One shouldn't kid themselves. Why would anyone want to put themselves in that situation to begin with? Talk about setting oneself up for failure and prolonged agony. It should be understood that one is responsible for choosing the people who inflict pain upon them. Subconsciously, they, choose, they chose these people intentionally to experience the pain they caused someone else at a different time or in a different life. If one thinks suicide is the way to escape, think again. There is no escape from karma. A person who takes their own life goes to hell. And I do not believe this, but we're just going to go with that, okay? This is the opinion of the author. But not the way one might think. It is the hell of having to relive the same life over and over. The abuse, the suffering, until one gets it right. God doesn't punish someone by ending their contract early. They punish themselves. Having one's, loved one, having one's loved one watching them from above, trying to guide them so they don't have to keep repeating something, is not easy for the loved ones to watch either. The only difference is they can be patient because they can see the long-term outcome of one's struggles. They know when to step in and when to step back. The people on earth can be stubborn creatures of habit sometimes. And on top of that, people are endowed with emotions and gonads, gone which people don't have on the other side. They can lead them in the wrong direction. Another thing people don't realize from the other side, when one is asked before coming to Earth, are you sure you want to do all of this? And they reply yes. They don't always think about how overwhelming it will be if their earthly tasks happen all at once, or one of their other are overlapping. One is then pulled in six directions. As the saying goes, nothing good in life comes easy. Nothing gets easy in life. People are here to learn and improve themselves and make up for previous mistakes that they've made. They are here to control their emotions and become in tune with a central part of themselves that allows them to communicate readily with those on the other side. The way suicide is handled on the other side is complex, and not what one might expect. The Christian Bible contains passages that talk about suicide. Remember this, we're rated R, PG-13 channel. If, you, if you're uncomfortable with what I'm talking about, Please move on. Please do not turn me into the TikTok police or the Facebook police or the YouTube police. Okay? The Christian Bible contains passages that talk about suicide. However, a lot of the original books of the Bible have been removed, and others were rewritten to accommodate traditional religion. 
There was no first edition of the Bible still in existence. There are copies from the first 200 years that were handwritten, however. A lot was misinterpreted and omitted, or omitted. Lynn has a Bible. However, she looks in it and beyond it for the knowledge that isn't written down. Lynn channeled her parents, sister, and brother from the other side to help her answer the question of how suicide is handled. The real answer is not the one people may have been taught from a traditional religion. When we come into this lifetime, Lynn's father saved on the other side. We're under a contract, so to speak. And in that contract, we're not only here to accomplish things, but also to help others complete their goals as well. This, in turn, raises one's vibration. The importance of raising one's vibration can allow one to be the third and fifth to be in the third and fifth planes at the same time. It's also known as being in a state of heaven on earth, where one can manifest with one thought and have a direct connection with their higher source, God, Jesus, and all the above. There are principles people already know but have to relearn while on earth that help them embody embodied one's race to their own vibrations. The principles are already in one's mind and are, lo and are located in the part of the earthly brain that is least known by doctors. It would make one's life so much easier if they were connected with a higher heavenly being's frequency. But it takes a lot of dedication and consistent effort to be able to do this. Unfortunately, most souls on earth are either unaware of the possibility or don't bother. All people have freedom of choice, but that is freedom to choose how they accomplish their goals and whether they do or not. So there is a boundary in life. Multiple paths are given by the same goal. So people do get to choose how they get there. Each person is part of a bigger puzzle, and each is equally important. No one person is more important than the other. Family networks, spouses, friends have all been planned for a person's life because that before that person enters. Each relies on the other, so when a suicide happens, it gets in the way of that. Everyone comes to Earth to fulfill their obligations, as well as help others fulfill theirs. However, sometimes suicide does happen. When suicide does occur, it is very similar to a sudden death. In sudden death, the soul can be overwhelmed by the reception that is prepared for them by those who are still living. The soul needs to understand that they have died. It can often take a while for a soul to acknowledge and digest this if the victim didn't know conscious, consciously death was coming and therefore have not prepared for the transition. The soul will go through its stages of disbelief, bargaining, and finally acceptance. Then the reception comes. Death is not a surprise for a suicide victim. They're committed to act themselves. So they so they know they're going to die. However, once it happens, their soul usually stands and looks around and sees their lifeless body. At this point, they may start seeking help, which they do not find because most humans cannot see them or hear them. The victim then goes through different emotions, such as sadness and loss, and the finality of what they've done starts to sink in. Sometimes, the victim will try to bargain for their life. Then they reach acceptance. There's no reception from the heavenly realm to greet them. They stand alone. Because the soul is not crossed over, they still have emotions. Often fear is one of the first ones, after acceptance and deep remorse. The deep remorse is sometimes caused by the act of suicide itself or the, reflex or the reflection of their own life as a whole. 
Most souls linger for a while, questioning what they did, and see loved ones finding their body. They are then made to feel the agonizing sorrow they have caused as their loss touches each person's life. At this point, the soul usually wanders in regret after seeing what they've caused. The pain and suffering they intended to avoid by committing suicide does not compare to the raw emotions that, that are made to bear for their loss in others' lives. Had they only known this ahead of time, they may have made the choice to continue living. God doesn't punish them. They punish themselves. This punishment is unavoidable. Suicide is not supposed to be attractive. It's never supposed to happen. Again, we're PG-13 rated R channel, so if you're uncomfortable, please move on to another channel to watch, uh, you know, just instead of dealing with the, with the Internet police. The heavenly spirits and loved ones watch the soul closely from their side. Any assistance is held back until the cycle is completed. A soul of high ranking is sent down and is determined whether the lost soul wishes to return home or stay earthbound. Once, often, just the vision of such a holy being brings the soul to their knees and causes them to run in fear and attempt to hide. The soul is given a life review and is shown visions of what their life would have been if the contract had been completed. After that, if they want to stay earthbound, they're released into the torturous fourth dimension, where, they're often, where they often become stuck. The fourth dimension is like living on earth with no body, but with the ability to see gruesome sights of the dark and the dead. Existing in the fourth dimension can often mean being pursued by demons or dominant angry evil souls that have no, that have no mercy. The lost soul will continue to feel the anguish and sorrow they have caused for the remainder of the lives of those they have hurt. The soul is left wandering with no way to communicate, stuck interdimensionally, and lost for a very long time. Eventually, the universe will absorb the lost soul's energy. However, if the soul chooses to ask for forgiveness and wants to cross over, many things are taken into, taken into consideration. Was the suicide done for selfish reasons, such as getting back at someone, or was it due to mental illness, demonic attachment, or archons? In the case of mental illness suicide, a loved one whom they are familiar with in the current lifetime will be sent to assist the soul in crossing over. However, until the soul does successfully cross over, they maintain their mental illness. Once retrieved, the soul, now free of the burden of negative emotions, illnesses, and attachments, is prepared for reentry. They are schooled and taken to the Akashic Records to view their records from past lives and the cubbies of their missed opportunities in this life. Then they're given the opportunity to return to complete their life, either as a newborn or a walk-in. If they choose to walk in, they'll be placed in similar circumstances to their situation at the time of their suicide occurred. Thus, they have the opportunity to make a better choice. There is no reception, and they do not mingle with loved ones until they have completed their life cycle. If the suicide was for selfish reasons, such as getting back at someone, or to avoid the repercussions of a dastardly deed, there's no reception either. The soul is prepared for re-entry and a do-over. They're not allowed to intermingle with their loved ones. And, depending on the dastardly deed, sometimes more stringent actions are taken. The Heavenly Principles Principles are the universal laws and laws of creation. Humans have full power over these laws, 
Everyone's world begins with the power to direct their thoughts, emotions, and feelings. With every word spoken, there is a thought. With every thought, spoken or not, energy is released into the atmosphere and into space. Most humans are aware of what outcomes they create for themselves with the thoughts they release. Thoughts become manifestations of the energy people pull out, put out. If one keeps complaining about not having any money, they will stay poor and struggling. If one thinks and says they never get a break or they never win, they never will. If one thinks someone else has it better than they do, that person always will. If one obsesses after being cheated on, they are setting themselves up for it to happen again in later, in later life. What a person puts out mentally comes back to them. Every person on this earth needs to take responsibility for their negative thoughts and emotions that cause negative outcomes. These thought manif manifestations can be used in a positive way, which is what was intended. This is the way communication happens in the spirit realms and on the other side through thoughts. Humans have unknowingly been using the power of thoughts and emotions wrong for centuries. This misuse creates unnecessary suffering, even during a time of uncertainty and change on our planet. It is important to align one's mind with higher values of love, compassion, and forgiveness. For those who are not soul-connected, it is time to learn a discipline that one, must, that one must exercise. One must unlearn what they have been exposed to on Earth and remember who they really are. An unknown author once stated, when one holds their energy in a state of judgment of another or oneself, one's vibration drops. Energy, held in expectation of a particular outcome, or in a space of victim, causes one's energy to drop. One must become aware of how they are created in each moment. With each thought or emotion, everyone is creating either positivity or negativity. This builds and affects your outer life in 3D, and prevents you from embracing a fifth dimension frequency, according to Sharon Evo. Feelings, even more so, are one's powerhouse and manifestation for one's future. It is an overlooked power that everyone has. Feelings and emotions are referred to interchangeably. However, they're not the same. Feelings are more mental and are felt at one's core, also known as the solar plexus. Emotions are the physical reaction to the feeling and are evoked from, a throat, from the throat plexus. Harmony in one's feelings is paramount. People don't realize the negativity they can create in their own life by allowing feelings to run rampant in response to situations they don't like or want. It becomes a vicious cycle of what one is putting out because it comes back to them. They don't realize the physical action of the emotion is caused by the feeling. Thinking comes into play to control the act out of feeling in a specific way. Thoughts are the reins for one's feelings and actions. Has one ever heard the saying, think before you speak? Taking a moment to think first and then say no to a feeling can change the outcome completely. Has one ever heard the saying, let's not go there? One can take control of their feelings by simply telling them, no, I am not going to go there and force themselves to think of something else. At first, one may need to do this over and over, because feelings are used to, to getting their way. When feelings are concerning and hurtful, one should not let them take over and ruin their day. 
Nothing can hurt or disturb someone without their consent. When someone cons consents to, to, to negative feelings, it leaves them open, like a raw nerve, and will attract more negativity towards them. No one should turn your attention to moods. Unless someone has been clinically diagnosed with a mood disorder, moods should not even exist. They're destructive as they involve more than just one person. It is selfish to expect others to tiptoe around another's mood. Moods are both the buildup of negative feelings and one's perception about how those feelings should be handled. Moods are a learned behavior, and they serve no purpose other than making the person having them miserable or making those around the person miserable, too. If one does have a diagnosed mood disorder, one should please their, take their medication as prescribed, whether they think they need it or not. One should not stop taking any medication prescribed for one's moods without their doctor's consent. A lot of times, people with disorders, when they start to feel better, think they don't need their meds any longer. What they don't realize is that their medication is what is keeping them balanced and making them feel better. Bipolar, for instance, is believed to be a chemical imbalance in the system of neuro, in the system's neurotransmitters. However, in reality, the exact cause of bipolar is unknown. However, there have been treatments for bipolar discovered that seem to improve with bipolar patients' fluctuating moods. With that being said, even people with bipolar can cautiously avoid the triggers that bring on their moods through the, through the same means as a person without a mood disorder by telling certain thoughts no and forcing oneself to think of something else, redirecting one's focus to something more productive and rewarding. I am not a doctor. She's a nurse. This is not medical advice coming from me. This is for, straight from the book. If you like what you hear, keep tapping that screen. Double tap, double tap, double tap. I'm trying to build up my uh, presence over here. Even with a disorder, one could choose how they allow themselves to be affected. It has already been discussed what depression attracts. Having a menstrual cycle can make hormones fluctuate. However, it is up to the person whether the natural hormonal cycles make them, I'm not going to use that word, but you know what I mean, make them nasty. I'm going to say nasty or not. One should think before they speak, take control of their feelings, and choose to stay out of their mood, feeling, and state of mind. No excuses. Choose to be happy instead. Learn some new coping skills, and don't chase away loved ones and teach one's daughter that being nasty is acceptable behavior to have during their cycle. Some of these negative behaviors are not hereditary. They are learned and passed down generationally, including coping skills and lack of good ones. Children learn what they see. Here is a perfect example, a story most have probably heard. A young girl was watching her mother bake ham for the family gathering, and she noticed her mom cutting off the, end, the, the ends of the ham before placing them in the oven. The girl asked, Mom, why do you cut the ends off before baking the ham? Hmm, I think it helps soak up the juices while it's baking. I'm not sure, though. That's the way your grandma always did it, so I just always cut off, you know, cut off, cut them off. Why don't you call Grandma and ask her? So the little girl phoned the Grandma and asked, Grandma, Mom is making a ham and cut off the ends before placing it in the oven. She said that it's probably just soaking the juices, but she also wasn't sure either. She said, you know, because you learned how to cook. Because you learned how to cook. Because Oh, because she learned how to cook from you. Sorry about that. 
That's true. I did cut off the ends of the ham before baking. But I'm not sure why either. I learned how to cook from my mom. You should ask her. So the inquisitive little girl called her great-grandmother and asked, Great-grandma, mom and grandma said they learned how to cook a ham from watching you. Did you cut the ends off the ham that soak up the juices? The great-grandmother chuckled. Oh, no, sweetie. I've never, I, I just never had a big pan enough to hold the whole ham. So I had to cut the ends off and make it fit. <laughs> That's from executiveform.com. So for all those decades, they were wasting ham and throwing it away because it was a learned behavior that family members repeated for years without question. It was the way they were taught, the same way the responses to feelings have been modeled and handed down through generations. Feelings are felt before they are spoken or exhibited. They, re they release the mental energy that is emitted outwardly. Even before it is spoken, this is why they are so powerful. With every emotion that is felt and then thought, it is triply reinforced when it is felt, thought, and then spoken. Feelings can be created by thought before they become a feeling. They can also be created by a feeling before they become a thought. An example is when someone senses when another is upset or angry before they have even said anything. This happens all the time between partners. When one spouse is upset with them, words don't even need to be spoken for one to know it. Another example is a mother sensing something is wrong with her own child, even when they're not in her presence, right? This is because feelings of the child's anguish or fear travels at lightning speed into the universe and into the mother. People react on feelings so much that they're not even aware of it. Think of the flare of anger when someone cuts another off in traffic. Take a minute to think about the emotion one is injecting into the atmosphere. That one incident joins other people's emotions so as to make a collective toxic emotional slew. This is a regular daily occurrence being put into the universe multiple times a day, especially during rush hour. All of that negativity is eventually returned to the earth and the people on it. Sometimes it comes to people more directly, depending on how often they hash over their negativity or rethink it and feel it over and over. People tend to do this with pet peeves with pet peeves and what they consider injustices. They complain about these things to others, compounding the problem more and bringing it back on, onto themselves. This is called venting. One shouldn't do it. A combination of people putting negativity out in the universe creates wars, things that appear to be natural disasters, such as hurricanes and tornadoes, and on a more personal level, even a manifestation of illness for oneself. What the person ha having the flare of anger, excuse me, of allergies in traffic doesn't realize is that there are reasons for these things to happen, and many times it is angelic intervention. In this case, intention is unlikely to be making one late or, started, or startled in traffic. Perhaps it is to make one pay attention, more attention, instead of reaching for their coffee while driving or prevent one from being cut off in traffic or to slow one down just enough to save them from something more tragic down the road. Has one ever passed an accident on the interstate and reflected on how they were delayed just 10 or 15 minutes by what they felt was another's thoughtlessness or carelessness? One might realize it could have been them in that accident if they had not been delayed by the school bus slow-moving truck or train. 
as one fumes, taps their foot, or screams obscenities. They should realize they might be late to work, but they're alive. Be thankful instead of angry or inconvenienced. There are so many things that one will never know that these inconveniences have saved them from. There could have been something much worse down the road. Something as small as one's baby vomiting on them before leaving to go somewhere or stepping in dog poop and needing to clean it up might leave one back to their home. Or they forgot to lock their door. Just think of the snowball effect of what tragedy could have happened in these scenarios. But instead of dwelling on it, thank you to God or whatever higher power one believes in and let the positive emotion of gratitude in the universe. People have learned to be frustrated or upset or angry in response to an interruption in their day. These patterns need to change because the divine plan is at play. This is one of the most important things people come to this early plan to learn and is the reason for which people are not shown automatically what is ahead in this life. The inconveniences are guiding one onto the path they need to be on for that day. Keep harmony in one's feelings at all times. Make a daily commitment to work peace, to world peace. How does one go about doing this? Each person is a creator of their future. The best place to begin with is in one's own mind. Eradicate blame, thoughts of violence or hatred, or of harming others, agreeing with warlords, and especially thoughts of an enemy because there is no enemy. The enemy is the negative thought energy holds in their consciousness. For those who are soul-connected, this comes naturally. However, no one's perfect, and at times, even someone who is soul-connected might still engage in erroneous thinking. Many believe those who are teaching the best life lessons are benevolent beings. But in reality, the ones who teach the most powerful lessons are the negative ones. For instance, when a person sees others as terrorists, they will fear them. One creates their own reality when they fear, and they attract that lesson to themselves. This, in turn, adds to the global hysteria, and it puts terror in one's mind. One way to overcome fear is to see it as a lesson in empowerment. It would be more worthwhile to focus a less hostile to focus a less hostile environment upon the world so there would be less instances of fear. It is important to lose all the thoughts of enemies, perpetrators, victimhood, and negative emotions. The reason one is suffering is because one believes they are suffering. Changing one's mind and thinking a more benevolent way in a more benevolent way, will alleviate the suffering. One should see this world liberation as only a positive outcome. Conflict is an opportunity to grow inner peace, acceptance, and living compassionately also allows conflict to cease. One must see the opportunity of growth and what is being carried out in the world right now. If one does not see it this way, they will remain on lower level frequencies and attract the lessons that they need to help enlighten them. Chapter 11, Ghostbusters. Lynn and Bill have been exposed to demons since they were children. They both grew up in homes that were anything but ordinary. They have helped many with demonic infestations that are able to clear homes successfully with specific techniques. Okay. 
If you like what you're hearing, and as uh, we shift into Chapter 11, if you like what you're hearing, please double tap that screen, double tap that screen. I'm just trying to build up my my presence on TikTok, just like on Facebook and YouTube. So uh, please tap that screen, double tap that screen, okay? And uh, show me some love over, over on the other networks. Let me take a look real quick, make sure we're still airing. And we are, okay. Let me get back into this. So here we go. Hugh. Hugh was an affluent gentleman and entrepreneur of his time. He created and owned a highly successful whole food distribution in South Florida. He was married and had one child, a daughter, Marlene. Hugh, although generous, wanted Marlene to be an active part of the family business and had her working often side by side with him from the time she was a young girl. Although he was affluent, he wanted his daughter to understand that making money came through hard work. He also wanted her to understand all the attributes of running a successful business. He instilled skills of customer service and the importance of scheduling and being on time, as well as respectability, pride in her work, and business finesse. Marlene's parents loved their only daughter very much and made sure she had everything she needed to be successful in life. Even though the family's business was a huge success, Marlene's mother still encouraged education and made sure Marlene had a good one. Marlene attended the best schools in the area and graduated with her PhD in psychology. Her understanding of psychology gave Marlene an edge when working with difficult customers and employee relations. She became a very important figure in her family's business. She entrusted her with tasks that he would normally only do himself. Plus, Hugh enjoyed spending time with his daughter, and having her work with him gave him an opportunity to do so that he would not ordinarily have had with his demanding and very busy schedule. Marlene married her first husband, Dalton, when she was 26 years old. Dalton was five years her senior. During the time she was married to Dalton, Marlene continued to work for her father's business, and the business continued to grow. She and Dalton lived in a very nice home in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, as did Marlene's parents, who lived in an area nearby. Marlene was always close to both her parents and the family business. They became more important. This became more important as her parents aged. Marlene's mother eventually passed away. Marlene decided to purchase a parcel of land to build a vacation cabin-style home. She'd been to North Carolina and thought it would be a good place to start looking. It didn't take long until she found a large parcel of land near the top of a mountain with, breaking view, with breathtaking views. Wild turkey, bears, and a natural water source. It also had mountainous areas of rich soil for planting. Marlene built a moderate-sized cabin to vacation in. Not long after the completion of the cabin, Marlene's marriage to Dalton started to crumble and ended in divorce. Marlene remained single for a while. She focused on her work and stayed busy. When handling accounts for the business, Marlene sometimes spoke to a gentleman named Newman, who was a salesman for the company. They spoke for a year over the phone until Newman started to show up at her father's home to fix issues with sales. Marlene would occasionally see him, and he, likewise, caught sight of the elegant brunette beauty. They finally met officially at her father's home. Marlene's sense of humor, fun nature, and quick wit enamored Newman. He couldn't help himself and was drawn more to her every time he saw her. Marlene, on the other hand, didn't think much of Newman in a personal way. 
She only thought of him professionally, despite her lack of interest. Newman's phone calls and visits to the business started to become more frequent as he found excuses to be in Marlene's presence. Newman took every opportunity to, to pursue Marlene. Marlene did not like Newman's appearance, yet he started growing on her. Marlene became attracted to his intense pursuit of her. She was flattered and finally accepted his advances. They got married after some time. Newman was a grandson of J.M. Lummis, who was, a very well known, who was very well known amongst the upper echelon of society in Miami. J.M. Lummis owned large parcels of ocean property in Miami Beach. He was a shrewd businessman and is known still today for donating property in Miami Beach. Lummis Park is named after Lummis Park is named after him. Newman had no access to the to, to the family money. He worked for a company similar to Marlene's father's company, and then started to work for Hugh. He retired not too long after marrying Marlene. They remained at Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale near her father. Marlene was Hugh's caretaker as he began declining physically. He needed her assistance with his daily activities until he passed away. Marlene's mother had passed away years before. She was now the only heir to the multi-million dollar estate. Even in death, Hughes chose a crossover and watched over his Chief chose a not crossover and watched over his daughter and his assets closely. Marlene decided to renovate the vacation cabin into a retirement home. She enlarged it into a five thousand square foot five bedroom, good lord, five and a half bath cabin with three floors and elevator. Now that's a cabin, two kitchens, and a large sauna. It had a room exclusively for a large hot tub with windows from ceiling to floor overlooking the mountains. The views were magnificent from any window of the cabin. It was, a, it was peaceful and serene with its water supply for, for our Chichen well. Some mornings, Marlene would wake up with a carpet of billowy clouds below the cabin with peaks of tall trees peeking through. There were rows of apple trees and blueberry bushes. The area around the cabin was also home to wild animals, and the air was crisp and clean. Marlene would awaken to the sound of birds singing. Once Marlene and Newman fully moved into the cabin, Hugh's spirit made itself known. He had followed his daughter to watch over her and was very protective of any hidden assets in the house that Marlene had inherited, in particular, his gold Krugerins. I hope I said that right. Marlene had hiding places in the cabin to keep the valuables safe and would relocate them frequently to ensure their safety. Hugh's soul roamed the cabin. He seemed to linger, linger mostly on the lowest floor, as many of the valuable items had been buried under the house and could only be assessed, accessed there, from there. There was a small unfinished storage area that was securely enclosed. Inside of it was a dirt area behind a closed door. Marlene didn't even tell Newman where the items were. Whenever someone was on the lower level, one could hear heavy footsteps rushing up, rushing upon them if they alone got you close to the door, holding hiding in the dirt area. The feeling of the air's vibration would become intense, and urgent desire to get out of that space would overcome them. Often, simply opening the door from the ground level to the stairway was enough to cause Hugh to show his presence in the stairwell, as, as, as if he was warning them to give him his privacy. When Newman or the groundskeepers were down on the lower level, they would see Hugh or hear him open and close doors. 
Sometimes they would hear his heavy footsteps, either rushing towards them or walking into the room and stopping in the lower level. He was not there to harm anyone. However, his strong presence alone was not enough to make people not linger in the, low, in the lower level. Hugh was seen by some of the guests who would come to visit and stay at the cabin. Lynn was a guest on multiple occasions, along with her partner, Bill, who was Marlene's nephew. During Lynn's first stay, she was in the kitchen alone to get a drink of water. She did not know where to find a drinking glass, so she started opening several cabinets, hoping to find one. Suddenly, she felt a concerned male presence. It was so strong that she thought it was Bill coming into the room. However, when she turned, the apparition of a well-dressed man stood watching her from the dining room. Luke could see the expression of concern on his face. I'm just looking for a glass to get some water, she said to the spirit. He faded away, but Lynn could feel his presence everywhere in the home as if he was keeping a close eye. That evening, Lynn prepared dinner for the family. As she stood in the kitchen, Hugh made an appearance and came closer to her. She could see him out of her peripheral vision. He was standing right next to her as she prepared the food. I'm making food for your daughter, Lynn said out loud, hoping Hugh would hear her. His presence was intense. I don't mean any harm. By nightfall, both Lynn and Bill were exhausted from the continuous drain of energy caused by Hugh. Lynn was unaware at first that Bill was also experiencing Hugh, until Marlene asked Bill to check on the valuables she had hidden to confirm they were still there. While in the lower level, Bill heard heavy rushing footsteps coming upon him from behind as he dug up the valuables and verified that all of them were still there. He became more uncomfortable the longer he stayed down there and hurried to put everything back. Bill was not interested in going down there again after that visit. He made mention of the footsteps to Marlene. Yes, Marlene said, that is Hugh, my father. Others have heard him down there too. Okay, guys, if you like what you're hearing, double tap that screen, double tap that screen. Show me some love on Facebook and YouTube. One evening, Lynn and Bill triggered, or lingered, I'm sorry, lingered on the upper level to visit Marlene in her bedroom after Newman had gone to bed. Lynn told Marlene she had met Hugh. Marlene seemed comforted that someone was actually able to see him. I wondered why I can't, she mused. Bill and Lynn went to bed. When they woke up the next morning, they were going into the when they woke up the next morning, they were going into Maggie Valley to see the sights and visit some friends they, they knew there. Upon their return to the cabin, Lynn was lingering out by the car when she saw the ghost of a young Indian woman peering from the blueberry bushes. Lynn mentioned it to Newman after entering the cabin. Yes, Newman said. Workers have seen Indians showing up out there in the woods, too. Sometimes they can hear their drum-like sounds. Lynn and Bill visited with Marlene and Newman for a while. They used the shortcut, they used the shortcut to get to their bedroom from Marlene's. There was a fake wall in Marlene's closet that opened directly into the guest bedroom, like a secret passageway. The room they were staying in gave them privacy, and the whole upper corner of the cabin themselves. Lynn took her shower and then relaxed in bed, waiting for Bill to finish in the bathroom. She heard footsteps coming from the stairwell. Lynn got up and alerted Bill. Will you go check the shoes of the stairwell? Lynn asked. I'm not dressed. 
She thought perhaps Newman had come up to use the computers on, on, on the upper floor. Bill put on his shorts and went out to see who was making the footsteps. No one was there. He came back into the bedroom and started to tell Lynn about the footsteps that he had heard the day before while in the lower level. I think it was Hugh, Bill said. Bill and Lynn awakened the next morning and headed for home. Marlene, due to some physical disabilities, mostly stayed in her bedroom. Her room was like a studio apartment, and she had access to everything she needed there. Newman brought her meals and washed her clothes. He did the shopping and took care of the pets. Newman also had a studio apartment-type bedroom across the hall from Marlene's. It even had a full kitchen in it. Newman continued his daily routine until he was no longer able to, able to, and Marlene had to hire help to assist her with her activities of daily living. Bill and Lynn returned to the cabin about four months later. Marlene had been ill and had gotten home from, the, from, from a rehabilitation center she'd been sent to after being hospitalized. She had, she had several women who would come to care for her in the home during the day. One of these women, Bill had an overwhelming bad feeling about. He had a vision flash that made him feel as if this person had some very negative qualities. Upon arriving, Lynn went into the cabin and was greeted by Newman. While Bill carried the luggage up to their room, Lynn asked Newman about the new employees. I've had some concerns, Newman said. I feel like I can take care of Marlene. So these people don't even have to be here. When Bill came back down, Newman, Bill, and Lynn sat on the deck overlooking the heavenly view. That woman you've hired, Bill said, she gives me this overwhelming bad feeling. My first impression of her is that she and the man with her are both criminal types. When we pulled up, they were getting something out of your vehicle, and something just didn't seem right. She recommended that man that is with her. Newman told Bill. She said he could take care of some things in the house that needed attention. I feel like we're being overcharged, but Marlene pays them what they're asking. He looked frustrated. Some of his work isn't, a, isn't that good, and I found out he wasn't qualified to be doing all of it. I could do just as good or better or a better job than him. I need some water, you guys. I'm sorry. Let me have a drink of water here. I apologize. The energy in the cabin was different than before. It seemed than before. It seemed something darker had tagged along with these new employees. The woman, Lynn found out, was a care assistant in the facility Marlene had been in for a few weeks after her hospital stay and was not supposed to be doing work on the side with ex-patients. The man was from a weird relationship with the woman who had admittedly been involved at some point with all three of the brothers in his family. Apparently, she was still dating his brother, but was involved with him too. Okay. Lynn went into the kitchen to put away the food they had brought when the care assistant walked in. Hello, Lynn said. I'm Lynn. It's nice to meet you. I'm Dana, said the woman. As she spoke, Lynn could clearly smell alcohol on her breath. Dana left the kitchen to go up and sit with Marlene. Lynn went and found Bill. The caretaker, Dana, Lynn said. Her breath smelled like alcohol. They went upstairs to visit Marlene in her room. When they walked in, both Marlene and Dana were, and Dana were smoking. Dana put out her cigarette. I need to leave an hour early. She left soon after Bill and Lynn entered the room. 
Marlene seemed tired, so they only stayed for a short visit. They wanted Marlene to get a rest. Then they built over to visit with Newman and made plans for takeout food for dinner. Lynn mentioned the alcohol smell coming from Dana's breath. I haven't noticed, Newman said. While Newman and Bill got off on other subjects about family matters, Lynn decided to go lie down for a nap. Once in the bedroom, she slipped off her shoes and lay down on top of the bed covers. As she lay there, she had a strong sense that she wasn't alone in the room. The light she had turned on started to flicker. She shut it off. Lynn lay awake with an ominous feeling. Something she felt well, suddenly, I'm sorry. Suddenly, she felt the bed slightly jiggle. It felt as if something was crawling up onto the bed right next to her. Lynn immediately told the spirit to leave as she sat up. The draft encircled her. Okay, the draft encircled her, then left out the door, making the secret door appear open slightly. The secret door could only be locked from the other side in Marlene's closet. Lynn got up and left the room out of a different door, when, went down the stairs in the living room, and lay down on the sofa. This spirit had not, present, had not presented like Hugh normally did. Lynn felt it was a male apparition, but didn't know, nor did she want to know, whose it was. As Lynn lay on the sofa, Marlene called on the intercom phone. I just woke up. I need someone to help me to the bathroom. Lynn went up and assisted her. While waiting in Marlene's room for her to finish in the bathroom, Lynn saw Hugh out of the corner of her eye, sitting near Marlene's bed. Then he faded away. I'm here to help Marlene, Lynn said. There's no reason to worry. As she spoke, Marlene returned from the bathroom and jumped on up on the bed. She caught a glimpse of Hugh. The cat just lay, the cat just lay there, staring in the direction that Hugh had been seconds before. Who were you talking to, Marlene asked. Hugh was in your room, Lynn told her. You should be comforted as he watches over you. The all ordered takeout food. Bill brought Marlene's up to her. Lynn, who had baked Marlene some cookies to keep in her, in her room, followed shortly after. They stayed with Marlene for over an hour. When they could tell she was sleepy, they left and headed for, for bed themselves. Lynn showered, then got into bed and waited for Bill. As she lay there, she was gripped by the ominous feeling of being watched by, someone, by something sinister. Despite the sinister feeling, Lynn managed to doze off a few, for a few minutes. She was awakened by something on the bed. Her first thought was that it was Bill coming to bed in the dark. Then she realized he was still in the bathroom. Lynn got up and told the presence to leave. When Bill came out of the bathroom, Lynn told him what had happened. They agreed the home needed a clearing, but they had not come prepared to do one. The next morning, Lynn was in the kitchen when Dana stormed in an hour late. She reeked of alcohol. Have you been drinking, Lynn asked. Dana's eyes flared as she got on the defensive. I was at a party, Dana said in a raised voice. It was on my off time. Please watch your tone, Lynn said. I'm just worried about your ability to take care of Marlene. Lynn and Bill had plans that day, but Lynn told Bill to go ahead without her. She was going to stay close if Marlene needed her. Dana was inebriated this morning, Lynn said, and she admitted to partying most of the night. Bill rode with Newman to run errands. When they returned, Bill commented on how bad his uncle's driving was. I will never ride in a car with him again, Bill said. Bill left to visit a friend. Lynn cleaned the kitchen and did laundry. While she was in the laundry room, she saw a dark, menacing shadow move past the doorway. It went down the hall towards the kitchen. 
Lynn entered the kitchen a few minutes later and saw the dark shadow go up the stairs toward Marlene's room. That's not Hugh, Lynn thought. Just then, Dana's man entered through the back door without knocking. He had used a hidden key. He passed the laundry room and entered the hallway. Hello, Lynn said. I'm Lynn. I'm Brian, the man said. Have you seen Dana? Wait here and I'll go and get her, Lynn said. As Lynn approached Marlene's door, she could hear the condescending tone Dana was speaking to Marlene in. Lynn knocked and quickly opened the door. Dana's demeanor instantly changed. Dana, your friend is downstairs, Lynn said. You should go down and see what he wants. After Dana left the room, Lynn turned to Marlene and asked, Are you okay? Do you want anything for breakfast? I'd like a fried egg, over easy, and a piece of butter toast, Marlene said. Lynn went down to the kitchen and prepared the breakfast. She was about to take it upstairs when Dana walked in. Dana took over and took Marlene's food upstairs. Lynn sat outside relaxing in the cool air. When Bill returned, Lynn told him about Dana and the dark shadows. Well, Bill said, turns out Dana has a side business as a sex therapist. What? Yes, said Bill. She was advertising on Facebook and had a page with her sitting inside a hot tub with dildos sitting all around. Bill went upstairs to visit Marlene and ran into Dana. He noticed the smell of alcohol on her, too. Dana left at noon that day, leaving no one but Lynn, Bill, and Newman to care for Marlene. Lynn and Bill spent the afternoon in Marlene's room. Then they went down to the kitchen to prepare dinner. Newman had already eaten and gone to bed by 6.30 p.m. Bill and Lynn sat with Marlene after dinner. Marlene was looking forward to seeing the other girl who was coming in a few days during the week to help her. She is supposed to come Sunday morning, Marlene said. I noticed that Dana smelled alcohol two days in a row. Sorry, I'll slow it down. Ah, I'm getting ahead of myself. I noticed that Dana smelled of alcohol two days in a row, Lynn said. I have noticed my I have noticed my liquor has been going down fast, Marlene mused. She turned to Bill. Will you go check on the valuables and move them to a different location? Of course, said Bill. He went to the stairwell, leading down to the lower level. A waffling appeared in midair in front of him. It looked like vapors from a gas can or a hot road or a hot road. He knew it was Hugh. Hugh didn't walk up on him this time, but remained in the room as Bill collected the gold Krugerins, Krugerins, I don't know what that is, and took them off to have to do research on that one, and took them up to Marlene's room, but showed them to, Bill showed them to Marlene so she could see them and, and to make sure they were still, all still there. Hide them here in a place inside my bedroom, Marlene said. He hid them right in front of her. Bill and Lynn went to bed without incident. When they woke up the next morning, they met Janet, Marlene's other caretaker. Janet seemed very nice and expressed her concern about Dana. Dana yells at Marlene, Janet said. I think Marlene is afraid of her. There has also been money missing from Newman's truck. Janet exchanged phone numbers with Bill. Thank you so much for being here, Bill said. Yes, Lynn agreed. Thank you. You should also know there's a ghost in the house. Yes, it's you, Janet said. When we come back, Bill and I are going to clear the cabin and do a blessing, Lynn told her. Janet was glad. Later on, Bill got a call from Marlene and Janet. Since Janet was responsible for helping Marlene and making out the bills, Janet had found that Newman had written Dana a check for several hundred thousand for several hundred dollars without Marlene knowing. Marlene was very upset and wanted Dana fired. I could get my husband and there's a lady to fill in hours, Janet said. 
Marlene had another stay at the hospital, followed by rehabilitation. Bill and Lynn went back to Marlene's four weeks later when she arrived home from her rehabilitation, and Bill fired Dana. Then he and Lynn worked together to clear the house of the darkness and negativity left behind by the woman. However, Hugh decided to stay. It seemed as if he knew there was more to come. Shortly after Bill and Lynn's last visit, Newman had a fall down the stairs, landing on his face and head. The accident and subsequent injuries eventually took his life. This left Marlene isolated and having to trust that her staff was doing the right thing. Janet's husband started working right away. Janet kept in touch with Bill and updated him regularly. Bill and Lynn didn't get back to see Marlene until spring, five months later. The winter was heavy, and they couldn't take the risk of going any sooner and getting stuck up in the mountain for days. Lynn and Bill then visited two more times over a three-month period. Marlene had other visitors in between. During the next few visits, Lynn found out from Janet that she and her husband were not really married. It turned out he was married to someone else. J.D., my husband, wasn't ever able to find his wife to, to divorce her after he got out of jail, Janet said. Lynn's ears perked up as she asked, out of jail for what? He was falsely given sex offender charges on a minor, Janet replied. He was accused of molesting a young girl that belonged to a woman he dated, but he didn't do it. Lynn started to have a sinking feeling in her stomach. She didn't believe people got arrested for something like that unless there was hardcore proof. Bill walked in the kitchen and Janet started telling him that money was missing from Uncle Newman's bedroom. Whoever took the money took the cash and left the empty bank envelopes behind, Janet said. It was probably Dana who took it. Everyone agreed, especially after finding the check Dana had gotten from Newman and the money missing from his car. Thank you, Janet, Bill said. I'm so glad you're here to help in. Marlene. After Janet headed upstairs to get Marlene her bath, Lynn took Bill aside and told him what she had just been told about J.D. Neither one knew what to do at that point. Later that evening, when Janet was fixing Marlene's dinner, Bill and Lynn went to tell Marlene what they had found out. Apparently, she already knew. I believe Janet's story when she says he was innocent, Marlene said. I'm okay with J.D. being here. The next morning, as Janet prepared to leave for her other job, J.D. came in and went straight up to Marlene's bedroom. He sat watching television while she slept. Bill went upstairs to see Marlene and J.D. Aunt Marlene, are you hungry, Bill asked. I'm taking Lynn out for breakfast. And we were wondering if you'd like us to bring back food for you. Oh, yes, Marlene said. She placed her order and Bill and Lynn left. Upon Bill and Lynn's return, Marlene enjoyed her brunch while Lynn and Bill went out to pick blueberries. That afternoon, Bill went outside to shoot his gun at targets. Lynn was tired and lay down to take a nap. She lay in the bed facing the bathroom. Suddenly, she was awakened by the sensation that someone was watching her sleep. When she opened her eyes, she saw someone rushing to sneak back into the secret wall opening from the bathroom into Marlene's closet. She watched him close the door. She thought it was Bill at first until she heard him shooting outside in the distance. Lynn knew that Marlene was not in good enough condition to get up and open the secret wall, and she realized it had to have been J.D. She thought J.D. probably had not realized that Bill and Lynn were staying in the room connected to the bathroom with the opening wall. Lynn mentioned the incident to Bill when he came inside. He went upstairs and into Marlene's closet to secure the door. As Lynn and Bill prepared to leave the next day, Lynn could not stop thinking about the incident from the day before. It didn't feel right. She realized that J.D. could have seen her napping from the open wall without even having to enter the, enter the bathroom. 
but he had entered the bathroom and had rushed back out when Lynn woke up. That made her feel creepy. She thought about his jail time served and the reason he was put away. Bill and Lynn agreed that J.D. was lurking either to steal something or who knows what else. He had known Bill was outside at the time. Meanwhile, Janet continued to complain about the new co-worker. She made accusations that the lady was stealing money from Marlene's weekly withdrawals, which she had just, which she had Janet make during the week for Friday's payroll. Janet had even, okay, Janet had even Marlene convinced that the missing money had been stolen by other people. As money continued to disappear, it was blamed on the new person, Lola, who would fill in as needed, as needed, a couple of weeks, times a week. Bill fired Lola based on what Janet told him about her. Janet also complained about increased signs of Hugh. She had seen him on several occasions in the kitchen, staring at her. J.D. had seen him in, the, in Marlene's bedroom as well. J.D. also claimed to see Newman's spirit in his old bedroom. Janet and J.D. had told Lynn they were working so much because they were saving for a house. Janet said she had to have cash to pay for the house because J.D.'s credit was messed up. I don't want to have to waste money cleaning it up before buying a house, she answered to J.D.'s credit, about J.D.'s credit. One day, Janet was suddenly thrilled to report to Lynn that she had found a home for $123,000. She had gone to look at it, and it had pictures to show. She even showed the photos to Marlene and Bill. At this point, Janet had only worked for Marlene for about six months, yet all of a sudden, she had the cash to buy her house. She bought it. Two days later, J.D. was working his shift and decided to leave early without waiting until his shift change got there to relieve him, despite knowing Marlene was a high fall risk. He left her unattended and all alone in her home for hours. Marlene was found on the floor with a fracture. She spent a month in rehab. Janet and J.D. disappeared. Marlene didn't want to press charges on anybody, so there was nothing to be done. Marlene reinstated Lola after Janet and J.D. left. Bill and Lynn returned to meet the new hires and see how things were going with Lola once again. Lola had gotten a hold of a woman named Dawn, who was one of Dana's relatives to cover shifts taking care of Marlene every once in a while. Through Dawn, Lola hired two more girls. One was Dawn's daughter, and the other was a woman who professed to being an off-duty police officer. Lynn and Bill came prepared to bless and clear the house of the negative energy being brought in by staff once again. They arrived on a Friday night and planned to stay for two nights. The first night, Lynn was on the top floor in the private room she and Bill always stayed in. Lynn settled in and decided to take a shower. Bill and Lynn planned on doing the clearing the next day after a good night's rest. When Lynn was in the glass shower, she saw the apparition of a man who was neatly dressed, wearing a white long sleeve shirt, tucked into his darker colored pants, walking into the bathroom. He entered from the wall leading from Marlene's bedroom. Lynn covered herself as the male apparition approached. He stopped and turned his head to look at her briefly. Then he looked forward and continued to walk forward out of the bathroom through the hallway door. She recognized him as Hugh. When Lynn was out of the shower and dressed, she went to see Marlene and told her and Bill what had just happened. I want to know for sure that this ghost, that, that this ghost is, in fact, my father, Marlene said. What does the man look like? Lynn began to describe the way the apparition was dressed and the way he walked. That sounds just like my father, Hugh, Marlene exclaimed. She picked up a picture about five was was about five minutes in it. Is this the apparition you saw? Lynn immediately pointed to one. 
That's my father, Marlene said. Hugh's presence was commonplace at the cabin, however. It was disturbing to the new staff. It also seemed as if Hugh might not be the only lost soul wandering around Marlene's cabin. In addition to the normal footsteps, Marlene said every one of the staff say that they hear movement on the lowest level when no one is, is in there. Lights would flicker and turn on when no one was in the room. The TV would apparently turn itself on too. One staff member even mentioned seeing an, a Native American squaw. I'm going to say woman. We're not going to say squaw. A Native American female in one of the bedrooms on the ground level. The staff also mentioned tapping sounds whenever they were in the kitchen or Marlene's room. Marlene mentioned that she had concerns about money and valuables missing and asked Bill if he would go to the new hiding place to make sure all the items were still there. Bill agreed to check. All of Hugh's valuables were accounted for. As it got close to evening time, Liz started to prepare dinner for everyone. As she stood in the kitchen, she too heard steps walking into the kitchen. At first, she thought it was Bill, but when she turned, nobody was there. She could feel the presence watching her. She continued cooking. The lights started to flicker. I mean, no harm, Lynn said to the room around her. I am doing Marlene. I'm, I'm making her something to eat. The lights stopped flickering. Lynn glanced over to the stairway opening and saw a glowing light with Newman standing there. I'm stopping in to say hello, Newman said, and to let everyone know I have crossed over. I know you can see me and will convey the message. Lynn finished preparing dinner and took Marlene's up to her as she was going to eat in her room. She got halfway up the stairs when she felt when she felt the spirit walk right through her, going in the opposite direction. Lynn ignored it and continued on. Once in Marlene's bedroom, she sat Marlene's food down on the bedside table and set it up for Marlene to eat. Lynn mentioned to Bill and Marlene what had happened with Newman, with Newman downstairs. Then Lynn and Bill headed back downstairs to eat. While they were eating, the night caretaker came in the back door. Lola started to tell them some of the things that had been happening, including seeing Native American spirits outside of the property. One was standing in the driveway one night when I got here, caretaker said. It was so real that I slowed down until it disappeared. Activity in the house had been amped as well, Lola said. It's, just, it's those dark shadows. Then the intercom phone rang. It was Marlene needing Lola's help. Lola left the kitchen to go upstairs and and relieved the off-going caretaker. Bill and Lynn cleaned up the kitchen and did the dishes. Then Lynn decided to go back upstairs to visit a bit with Marlene and Lola. As Lynn sat talking to them, there was a sound in the corner of Marlene's bedroom. It sounded as if someone was throwing ping-pong balls in the corner. I heard it too, I hear it too, Lola admitted. Lynn felt something fluffing the air, or fluffing the hair on top of her head. Did you see that, Lynn asked? Yes, Lola said. A hand reached out, over your head, and touched your hair. Dark shadows hovered over Lola. Lynn thought at first that the shadows came, came with Lola. They didn't. However, they were J.D.'s leftovers. Lynn left Marlene's bedroom and found Bill lying down, relaxing in their room. Lynn told Bill about all the activity in Marlene's room, and they both agreed they had their work cut out for them the next day. Lynn lay down on the bed while Bill went down in the kitchen to get a snack. As she lay there, she heard the familiar shoed footsteps. Lynn sat up in bed and said quietly to Hugh, tomorrow we're going to clear the house of any negative spirits and energies that are creating havoc in your daughter's room. I will help you cross over if you decide to do so. 
the light overhead started to flicker. The next day, Bill and Lynn worked together to bless the entire house. The blessing took many hours to complete, and they were exhausted when they finally finished. The negative forces fought back during the clearing, and Bill and Lynn were under constant attack while cleansing and removing the unwanted apparitions. During the cleansing, Bill came across Hugh, who again presented as fumes wafting in midair. He stood in the stairwell to the lower level. Hugh was choosing once again to stay earthbound to watch over his daughter. The new employees were still of concern. And again, he had good reason to stay. He wanted to protect his daughter and the fortune that he left her. It was unfortunate that Lynn and Bill could only intervene so far. Marlene was of sound mind and made her own decisions, which at that time included not reporting incidences to the police. Marlene trusted her workers to find other in-home help for her. No background checks were being done before hiring. It was mostly word of mouth. Before Bill and Lynn went home, they met Diana, who said she worked for the Haywood Sheriff's Office. She had been sent to work for Marlene through a caretaker agency and didn't find the job with Marlene hard. Diana worked three nights a week, but Lola and Lola covered the remaining four. Diana said that Hugh's ghost would frighten her as she had seen him and, and heard his footsteps walking behind her. Diana was there during the night shift, and Lana came during the day. Marlene seemed to be happy with, with her new staff. She was told that Diana was a police officer and that Diana wanted to make some extra money moonlighting. Lana was someone that one of the other workers knew. knew. Lana's daughter covered the shift sometimes, too. Lola was the only remaining long-term employee at that time. It didn't take long for the new girls to begin to see Lola as a threat. They blamed everything that wasn't done right or wasn't done at all on her. Whether it was their responsibility or not, they had Marlene convinced, too. Then the stealing started to happen. The well-thought-out thefts done by two of the women separately. Wow. Marlene was confined to her bedroom for the most part. She was unable to get around the house. Therefore, no one noticed anything was missing until Bill and Lynn returned to visit from, for a visit a month later. They met both of the new employees. Marlene asked Bill to check the secret areas to ensure the hidden items were still there. After two and about two months later, Bill and Lynn visited Marlene again. After speaking with Marlene for a while, Lynn went downstairs to prepare dinner. As she stood in the kitchen preparing spaghetti, four of the eight recess lights turned on. Lynn heard footsteps and turned to see Hugh standing near the dining room table. He had a somber expression on his face as he paced back and forth. Lynn could feel the intensity. I'm preparing dinner for Marlene, Lynn said. He faded, and the four lights flickered and turned back on. Lynn told Bill later that evening that something didn't feel right. As Bill and Lynn readied for bed that night, Bill told Lynn that Marlene had asked him to get her father's coins out of hiding and bring them to her. When I took them out of the hiding place, the glass jar had been tampered with, Bill said. I had put the gold cougar in, so that's what it is, coins, inside the jar, then wrapped them in brown paper and taped it up securely. When I found the jar, the wrapping had been removed. He had heard footsteps rushing up to him as he removed the jar of coins from the designated hiding place. I felt like Hugh was watching me with the jar of coins the whole time, Bill continued. I could not imagine how anyone would have found the jar hidden in the ceiling, air conditioning vent. I had not told anyone about it. Marlene was the only other person who knew where the coins were. She saw me place them there, in the vent over her bed. 
but I could tell the jar was not the way I'd left it. I wanted Marlene to be the one to open it. When Bill returned the jar to Marlene, half of her father's gold coins were gone. The next day, Marlene checked her jewelry box. A lot of her jewelry was gone. Bill strongly encouraged Marlene to call the police. Everyone was a suspect. Even when calling the police, no one really knew the extent of the robbery until some of the items from Marlene's cabin were found pawned. Most of the stolen items would be covered under Marlene's insurance policy. Regardless, it was still heartbreaking for Marlene after all. It wasn't about the cash value of the items stolen. It was about the sentimental value. The items stolen could never be replaced. Because Diana was portrayed as a police person, Marlene had thought it would be safe to disclose some of her hiding places to her. Diana was not even suspected of stealing. She was the only one who was not a suspect. That is, until it was found that Diana was, in fact, the thief. She was caught while she pawned multiple rare and antique items that she had stolen from Marlene. After Diana's last and largest heist, she never returned to work. She was a no-call, no-show, leaving Marlene's staff scrambling to cover her shift. Marlene had no idea how much had actually been stolen until the detective found the pawn shop Diana had been using and reported all the items she had pawned up to that point. However, even with the extra items stolen, there were still other pieces of jewelry and items that were missing. They also, they were also assumed to be theft of Diana. In the interim, Lana took the opportunity to steal many items too. She thought it would be blamed on Diana. Lana assumed this would go unreported. So Marlene had not reported any of the other thefts. However, she was wrong this time. Lana found out on her day off that the police had been to the house. She started to panic and called Lola. Lola told her the police fingerprinted where the items had been and were looking into the theft. The police may want to speak with you too, Lola told her. Lana returned to work with a pair of diamond earrings and a small zip-top plastic bag, claiming she had just found them in a drawer. Lola knew she had cleaned out the drawer and questioned herself when Marlene was moved from the upper level to the lower level. The drawer had been completely empty. Lola found this odd and reported it to Bill, who then related to the police. Lana attempted to return the diamond earrings she had stolen, as well as some other items. All the money in Marlene's husband's room had been taken. Only the bank envelopes had been left behind. Lana continued to point the finger and ingratiated herself to Marlene, who thought she was innocent. Lana thus secured her position and had years to continue stealing. Marlene asked Bill to run background checks on Diana. They found out she was not a police officer, she was a postal worker. The uniform pants and shoes that she wore to work with, Mar with Marlene looked like police pants and shoes. Diana moved to Virginia, and to this day, there was a warrant for her arrest. Marlene was told by the detective working her case that the police had too much going on to go get her. A background check on Lana was not done until much later. That was a huge mistake. As much months passed, Marlene had some hospital admissions with extended stays in rehab centers. Marlene's staff would follow her there. They also had full access to her home and would sometimes get things from there for Marlene. Marlene felt, with her health declining, she would not be able to stay in her cabin and paid her round-the-clock sitters, too. She had decided to sell her cabin and move into something less expensive that she could pay cash for and use the money she made from the sale of her cabin to maintain her lifestyle. 
She made a deal with Lana that if Lana would care for her until she died, then everything Marlino would go to Lana. Lana liked this idea and was overheard bragging about it to others. She lived in a rundown mobile home. Being, Mar being Marlene's heir would give Lana the opportunity to live in a lifestyle she would never have been able to achieve on her own. Lana began to look for homes in an area close to where her family lived. Lana started packing and stealing many items that she claimed to be packing or donating items without always asking Marlene. Beautiful hand-knotted rug, hand rugs, top-of-the-line kitchen gadgets and dishes. Marlene's stoneware was by Macasia, and her everyday flatware was by Onita. Marlene had beautiful furniture that Lana would claim was broken. Then Lana's family would come with trucks to load it up and carry it away. Lana rushed Marlene out of the cabin, claiming the realtor told her it was necessary. Marlene was ambivalent about leaving, but any attempts by Bill or Lynn to offer solutions were not considered. Lana found homes, homes for Marlene to look at. One in particular was not too far from the mobile home Lana had been living in. The home was the largest home in the neighborhood, with a view of a run-down trailer park and the kitchen, from the kitchen window. It was on a dead-end street, with a huge junkyard at the end of the street. The next-door neighbor's home had weeds in the yard, growing taller than the home itself. On the day Lana took Marlene back to this house to make, his final, to make the final decision, Marlene asked if Lynn and Bill could come. I want to see what they think of it, Marlene said and if it's clear, it goes. Lynn and Bill did not think buying the new home was a good idea. Something about the house didn't feel right. Lana encouraged Marlene to buy the house, and, and she did. They signed papers to buy it in the driveway that day. It didn't take long for Lana to hold up her into the bargain. Lana would leave Marlene in her room unattended for hours and become verbally abusive to her. Lola, who was called into battle to bathe Marlene, and clean her room, contacted Bill and told him about Lana's lack of care giving. Marlene was of sound mind, but was unable to get even herself to the bathroom. Lana sets a bedside commode in pivoting distance, and then leaves the commode full of urine and feces most of the day, Lola said, and the house is filthy too. Because of Lana's sudden change of personality, her drunken husband, who would start drinking as soon as he woke up with her baby that Lana was constantly yelling at, Marlene had finally decided to do a background check on Lana herself. There were pages of arrests for balance checks and fraud. Lana was not even a real name. She had multiple aliases and had been arrested several times. When Lana moved her staff into Marlene's new home, she brought her demonic minions. Her husband carried an auction on his back due to a severe drug and alcohol addiction. Their dark entities started to create havoc in the house. Lola saw lurking dark shadows both inside and outside the home. The fighting between Lana and her drunken husband is ongoing, Lola said. Okay, guys, it's 7.30. I'm going to stop there, and we will continue from this point next Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Sorry I had to stop, but I'm running into another thing I had to do today uh, for the team, so um, I will see you guys next Sunday. I really appreciate you guys coming. Again, if you like what you saw, please double tap that screen and share it. I really appreciate it. Tomorrow's show is going to be with Dr. Heather Lay, and we're going to be talking about Southern Nevada ghost towns that are really, really haunted. And so we're going to have a discussion with her about that. So if you're interested in that, come visit us over at 6.30 p.m. Pacific on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. Otherwise, I will see you and have a great rest of the week.
Okay, guys, let me mark my space. And, um, okay, this is where we left. Hang on. Let's see if there's a way for me to do a highlight here. Actually, I'll do it afterwards. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for coming today. Everybody that that that, that held in there, it was a long read, and uh, we'll we'll I'll uh, try and mark the mark the space where I left off, so we can continue next week. But uh, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. You know, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hate the show, share it with five of your enemies. Again, we're equal opportunity here. So uh, hopefully, you guys enjoy it as much as I did. I, I love reading this. Um, I will see you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, for Dr. Heather Lay, and we're going to be talking about haunted southern Nevada ghost towns. All right, see you tomorrow. Have a great evening. Bye.